Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that usually looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. But not today. I'm Brian. And I'm Sean. And this is our first episode of our mini-series, The Male Gaze. How you doing, Brian? I'm good, Sean. How are you? Uh, do I say super as always in the series? I'm not quite sure. I don't know. You could say super as always. Yes, I could. <laughs> if I wanted to. Do you know what horses eat on Brokeback Mountain? Hey. <laughs> it's not reading gay jokes all week. There's not one that you can say that I don't know. All week? You've been reading gay jokes all summer. Yeah, so um, should I tell one now? No, no. <laughs> yeah, no go right. for it. Go for it. Okay. Uh, what did the gay dentist say to his uh, patient? I don't know, Sean. They're the whitest teeth I've ever come across. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the tone has been lowered because, as Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. Uh, she said that so long ago. <laughs> it has been a summer. It has been a summer of mania. A summer of violence, a summer of drama. It's been a summer of longing, really, because we've been longing to record a podcast, haven't we, Sean? Oh, dying to. <laughs> dying to record one. We barely, we barely took any time off at all. That's hardly true, but we have taken some time off from our usual habit, which is to talk about films that feature the stories of women. We've decided to shake things up. Yeah, so consider this Broad Appeal series 1.5. Now, Sean, is it fair to say that you tend to not be all that interested in movies that mostly focus on men? No. I don't focus on films that feature men when they're boring, tedious, uninteresting, and uninspired pieces of filmmaking. I'm very, very interested in, in men and male filmmaking and depictions of masculinity when I suppose you could question them, analyze them, scrutinize them, or or even simply what we're doing now, which is talk about them. So the, the movies that we've decided to look at are actually from a range of different decades, aren't they? They're also a range of different genres. They focus on male protagonists, masculine worlds for the most part, but sort of unconventional masculinity or masculinity in crisis. So do you think it's appropriate then, as we dive into the celluloid closet, we open its lavender doors, that we are going to be looking at the 1980 film Cruising, directed by William Friedkin and featuring Al Pacino. Did you ask me a question? Yes, I said, do you think it's appropriate? I do think it's appropriate, very appropriate, considering that, maybe you didn't realise, but the very first podcast we did was on Basic Instinct. Oh, which yeah. actually uh, featured many of the tropes, criticisms, and problems that cruising featured. And actually, Basic Instinct was also famously protested by gay groups for perpetuating the gay, murderous, violent, psychopath trope. Yeah, Brian has seen the film. And we've both done a little bit of reading beforehand. I think what fascinates me the most is that Cruising was a film that took a, a subculture of the gay lifestyle and made it seem the norm for white bread Americans. Yeah, so before we chose to do this movie, what did you know about Cruising? I gather you've wanted to watch this film for a long time? I was always told it is not worth your time. Like it's not actually a good movie? Yeah, it's not actually a good movie. Like I... One time I had ideas of reading Atlas Shrugged and people were like, don't bother, it's not even well written, you know? I could probably... Did you know, Ayn Rand actually wrote the screenplay for Cruising. You're lying. 
She didn't do that. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Did you know that Ayn Rand actually is the mother of Rand Paul? <laughs> do you know if you knew this? No. We're very close. <laughs> close to what? <laughs> go on, go on. But at the same time, I've always known to read Atlas Shrugged, and I've always wanted to see this film, so I think now the opportunity has finally risen. So let me tell you what I know about Cruising. I know that it's directed by William Friedkin, who did such films like The Exorcist. It stars Al Pacino, who is, is famous, and definitely was incredibly famous in 1980. It is about the leather scene in New York City. It features a serial killer. And you could also say it has pretty graphic depictions of a subset of gay culture. Yeah, it's a murder mystery where Al Pacino is an undercover cop who goes into the world of the leather bars to try and find a serial killer who's killing gay men. So... I've also heard it's ludicrous. That's what I, the last thing I should say. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it a few years ago, and my memory is it's one of those movies that in and of itself is laughable, and you're just jaw-dropping in terms of its depiction of gay life, but also like a fascinating document as this kind of time capsule. It was filmed in all the famous leather bars of the day, like the Ramrod and the Anvil and all these places that, you know, you and I dream of. <laughs> When we, when we go to bed at night. Same bed, different dreams. <laughs> I think the thing about this film, which uh, some of the criticism I've read is, is that in some ways it is an accurate depiction of a very particular type of gay culture, which is the leather culture in New York City, which, which was then what it is not now, which was a much less sanitized, seedier, more affordable sexually liberated place. This, of course, we should say, was made before the first AIDS diagnosis really had happened. Yeah, it was filmed in 1979. Yeah. This film was controversial even before it was filmed. For whatever reason, the gay community in Greenwich Village learned that the movie was being made. They learned what the plot line was. They might even have read the script or yeah. something. Very similar to Basic Instinct, yet again. Yeah, so the reason Basic Instinct was protested was because people from Queer Nation saw copies of the script they knew what was happening, what was going to happen. Was it protested while it was being filmed? Which one? Basic Instinct. Yes, Queer Nation. They would do this thing where whenever they're doing nighttime scenes, they would be there with loudspeakers and horns and everything. Well, this is exactly, yeah. apparently, the same as what the gays in the village did when Cruising was being filmed and was being filmed in many of the actual night spots that the leather guys frequented. So what do you think the the proprietors of these venues let them in, but the patrons... Well, apparently they eventually barred them from coming in because it was causing so much of a ruckus. I'm sure the proprietors were happy to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, my memory of the movie, I think one of the things that's like perhaps the most pernicious aspect of it is not the fact that the serial killer is going around killing gay men, but it's also its depiction of Al Pacino as our straight cop who gets put into the world of gay sexuality and sort of starts to perhaps go a little bit psychosexual himself, you know? So it really dramatizes in this kind of weird meta way the worry of the straight male, of going into gay spaces, being involved in this kind of other sexuality that's somewhat threatening and mostly threatens his own status as a macho man. Now, I can't deny that I'm really curious to see this because if you think about it, it is made by straight people with a straight protagonist in the lead for 
I'm guessing, a straight audience because, I mean... Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure gay people saw it, but films like this are not made for gay people. Well, it's basically the only mainstream Hollywood movie I can think of up until that point that had any significant depiction of a gay world, like an all-gay world. So, Is there butt sex in it? I, I don't remember any explicit scenes of butt sex, but apparently, according to everyone's favorite pseudo-fag, James Franco, there's apparently... <laughs> we, are, we are not fans of... Can I just say, James Franco is to gay culture as, like, Elvis Presley is to black music. Like, <laughs> someone who's, like, made their entire career out of, like, appropriating and watering down. <laughs> I mean, like, what is the deal with James Franco? Is he even relevant? I think his brother is becoming more relevant now. <laughs> yeah. I like his brother before. Yeah. Yeah. Well... James Franco apparently became obsessed with the fact that cruising supposedly has a whole bunch of content that did include some explicit actual sex that was cut out of the movie and is now lost. And he made this semi-controversial meta movie called Interior Leather Bar a few years back that like purports to be a sort of making of documentary trying to recreate the minutes of the of the footage that were that were destroyed. Yeah, I watched the trailer for it before we started and it does look quite tedious. Yeah, well, it mostly just looks like a wank job of, or a Frank, a, maybe we should call him James Wanko. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Do you? We've coined it here first, folks. Can I just say something else? Um, what is your relationship with either William Friedkin or Al Pacino? Do you know, I mean, William Friedkin is somebody who's, I haven't seen many of his films, but one of them in particular I, I love very much. Killer Joe. Killer Joe, yeah, I love Killer Joe. Does Killer Joe have a bit of um, gay content in it? No, but Matthew McConaughey is kind of leathered up in many ways. Um, But, so, Friedkin, you've seen The Exorcist. Yeah, I've seen The Exorcist, and I I mean, I like The Exorcist because I like what it did to uh, horror at a particular time. I'd say that it started with Rosemary's Baby and... Exorcist kind of legitimized uh, the genre to kind of you know, arty. arty level, and I, and I think in recent years, you know, we, the horror film as was known in the seventies by people like Freakin doesn't really exist the same anymore. I always get upset when I see a horror movie trailer because it's the same old tropes and bullshit over again. Is it fair to say that like William Friedkin is of all those kind of easy rider raging bull era guys it sort of has this reputation as being like Mr. Macho. Well I mean I don't know I mean what is his style? What is his well, thing? Well I mean, you haven't seen The French Connection. Oh yeah I've seen bits of it yeah. yeah. I mean it's, French Connection is a good movie yeah. but again you know The French Connection, The Exorcist they all have this kind of like tough as nails aesthetic but it's also funny to remember that William Friedkin also directed the film version of Mark Corley's play The Boys in the Band, which is the kind of classic he camp that. gay comedy. Yes. Oh my god. And then he also did Cruising. Now, I have to say, if if those of you who enjoy this podcast, you probably listen to other podcasts, and if you want a kind of fascinating filmmaker interview, go listen to Mark Maron's recent WTF podcast where he interviews William Friedkin because he is bonkers in a way that you would never expect. He goes on this long riff about how much he loves the Shroud of Turin. What I mostly took away from that interview was that even though Friedkin is still very much a man's director and this man's guy, he has all these weird and idiosyncratic interests. Well, I think anybody who positions himself as a man's man, you know, or has a style that is a man's man, shouldn't limit it to one particular type of man. In many ways, I expect his curiosity to, to wander over to, you know, 
the brown side. No, it's gross. Let me say that again. <laughs> we're, it's gr- we're, gross. We're talking about a man who got a 16-year-old f- girl to masturbate with a crucifix. Okay. Yeah. 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 He told a little anecdote to Mark Maron, which I found fascinating. So I'd always heard that cruising was based on two things. One is a apparently pulpy murder novel that has a similar premise, but was very much changed for the film. And the second was the kind of actual crime investigations of some kind of undercover cop who had posed as a leather daddy in order to investigate a murder. But according to Friedkin, the in this podcast, the idea for the film came when they were filming The Exorcist. And is there a scene in The Exorcist that takes place in a hospital? Like, where they're doing a brain scan or um, something like that? Yeah, Linda Blair's character, Regan, does go and get some scientific yeah. tests. So there's a scene where they take her to the hospital, and they had real-life technicians, and one of them was a gay man who was, like, a male nurse. And Friedkin had a conversation with him, and he remembered him and became an interesting figure. And then years later, it turned out that this actual real-life male nurse was, in fact, a Jeffrey Dahmer-esque serial killer oh, who was killing his lovers. Are you serious? Yes, yes. This actual least, serial killer. This is according to Friedkin in the Mark Maron podcast. That was his reason for being fascinated by the gay leather scene. So I just think the whole movie has this kind of prurient vibe of, like, a straight man looking into this world. That this he lurid finds. world. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 for sure. Which he doesn't understand, will never be part of, but definitely is intrigued by how dirty it must be. You'll see, you'll see. I also have to say, I love Al Pacino. I know he has a bad rap these days, like everything post-Scent of a Woman, but he actually continues to give, I think, some very good performances. I mean, Danny Collins... I saw the ad for that movie on buses here in London for months. It never seemed to go away. No, honestly, I do love Al Pacino. How do you feel about Al Pacino? Well, I quite like The Godfather 1 and 2. Quite like? I mean, I like them a lot. It's one of the greatest American films ever made. But I, I, you will know, have only seen The Godfather Part 1 and 2 within the last three years. But the part of Al Pacino that I actually know the least is kind of, in many ways, the Al Pacino which he's known for the most, which I think is playing the tough cop or something, you know, or or the really bad guy, like in Scarface or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that one he plays a cop, Sicario, is that him? Carlito's way. Yeah, that kind of thing. You see, for me, that that for me, that's what Pacino represents. The first Al Pacino film I ever saw from start to finish. Do you know what it was? Um, analyze that. Is no, that's that? De Niro. Oh, it was The Devil's Advocate. Oh, which scared the shit out of me. I have to say, <laughs> anything involving the devil always creeped me out. That's why you love The Exorcist so. Yeah, much. no, I mean, I yeah, I've always found the devil fascinating. <laughs> Senor Diablo. <laughs> I think the thing, the reason I love Al Pacino is the unique combination of sensitivity and brutality that he has, which I think is most beautifully captured in the the two first two Godfather movies, where he is both this very relatable, vulnerable son who then becomes this terrible man and has these conflicts within him. I mean, Al Pacino, young Al Pacino, I think is very sexy, very beautiful. Oh, I mean, I've always wanted to see Panic and Needle Park and Dog Day Afternoon. Which we indeed will be seeing later on in this series. He has a lot of notes in him that the stereotypical, you know, hoo Al Pacino 
that people, I, I guess if you look at Nicholson, Pacino, and De Niro, mm-hmm. I think most casual film commenters would be like, oh, they've all gone off the deep end and become complete stereotypes. But I actually think De Niro and Nicholson basically only play hammy versions of their old selves. And Pacino still pushes himself with things. Often in kind of... I'm not sure. No, it's true. He very recently was playing Shylock in Shakespeare in the Park. He played Roy Cohn brilliantly in Angels in America. Uh, You know, he plays larger-than-life characters still, but he is is pushing himself. I think he's a real actor, which doesn't mean he's always good. I can't help but take your observations with a grain of salt. You know, you mentioned De Niro, Nicholson. There's no reason why those people still need to make the films they're making, the terrible, terrible films they're making. But that's what I'm saying. Al Pacino is not, for the most part, making those terrible, terrible films. So what films. did he do Danny Collins, then? He got a Golden Globe nomination for that. It's the Golden Globes. <laughs> Honestly. Listen to yourself, man. He's also appearing on stage no, with some true. frequency. All that being said, I doubt that his performance in Cruising is going to make you love Al Pacino because this is not an acting movie. It's called Cruising, so I expect it's about how things are looked at and how people look. Yeah, I mean, nominally, it's a murder mystery where we're supposed to be wrapped up in who the killer is. But actually, I think what you and I are going to find laughable, fascinating, and infuriating is the depiction of this gay world, lubed up and all Criscoed as it may be. Will I get your numbers? I don't know. I don't know. I mean... You were turned on by Bob Hoskins selling <laughs> shoes to Christina Ricci. No, it wasn't the selling shoes. It was Bob Hoskins doing everything but selling shoes. Just, if you don't like this movie, picture it all but with Bob Hoskins. <laughs> uh, actually, you know who is in this? One of your favorite actors, Paul Sorvino. Oh, yes. The great Paul Sorvino. So I'll get I'll get some hankies out because whenever Sean sees Paul Sorvino, he gets a bit teary No, since stopping Broad Appeal 1 and doing this, there's now two things that make me cry. One is uh, Bernie Sanders' brother at the Democratic National Convention giving him his vote. And the other is Paul Sorvino crying at the Oscars for his daughter. She thanks him for, for everything she knows and he just weeps. There's something about men openly weeping that really gets to me. Mm. Well, let's see if we're openly weeping by the time that we've seen yeah. who the killer is in Cruising. So pop open your poppers. Oh, and- they're ready. <laughs> I, got, I got some, they're in the fridge chilling Wait, which, hank- which hankies are we going to wear? I haven't decided. Why don't you borrow this red one I have? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if we survive, you'll see us on the other side of the ramrod. Bye-bye. Hey, baby, what's happened? I'm with someone. Aren't we all? Want to dance? Now, what were you faggots doing up there? What is this shit, huh? You were going to stick him, weren't you? What are you talking about? Whose room was it? His. Is that right? I, I told you what we're doing in there is none of, none of your business, sir, so you had no right to come in there. You didn't have a I want to know what you were doing in there. Nothing! Nothing? He's tied up lying face down. Nothing? Is this what you had in mind for him? Listen, we got enough to stick you away for three years right now. It's as tight as a chicken's ass. This guy cruised me. I didn't even know him. I didn't even know his name.
dissect cruising and by dissect i really mean dissect should you try that again what's wrong with that <laughs> the movie starts with a with a limb floating in the east river i think you should put that as outtake at the end <laughs> okay sorry 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 sean you stated that this movie was good hey i didn't say that yes you did I said that I liked the film. Yeah, I liked Cruising. I thought there was a lot going on. I mean, before we started recording this, Brian said, so what do you think the trajectory of this conversation would be? And I've kind of broken down some segments for you. So a reaction to the film, why I liked it, what was good, and every other reason why it didn't work and it was bad. When you say good... Do you mean interesting? Do you mean a fascinating document? Or do you mean, as an actual movie, that it is good? I mean, can it be all those things? It can be all those things, but I'm I'm finding it hard to believe that you actually think it's a good movie. You know, as a time capsule, I, I really do appreciate it. Brian, you and I are not, you know, you and I are not total strangers to the more seedier side of, of some venues in London, you know? Are we? No. No. So there was an element of what I have recognised living in this city of a time that was much freer, different kind of lifestyle that actually I found to be quite sexy. While I didn't find it arousing, I mean... Actually, I I challenge you on that. Do you think so? You did did find it arousing. Did I? Okay, well, I found it sexy, hands down. You're saying you found it interesting as a time capsule. Now, obviously, it appears, as far as I can tell, to have actually been filmed in these kind of legendary clubs that anyone who's read gay histories about the 70s in New York has heard of, right? All these places that no longer exist. So, yeah. To the degree to which it has a documentary kind of element. I mean, the no- I'm sure I must have gotten annoying during the movie. Where I was like, we were standing on that corner when we went to New York. No, I liked that. You liked no, that? No, I did because it puts into context like yeah. what is there now? Like I, probably a yeah, you know, a Starbucks. I, or no, a cupcake shop. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no. So I mean, this is the meat packing district when it was actually about packing meat of different. Two different varieties of meat and a lot of blood being spilled and washed off the sidewalks into that milieu. William Friedkin spills some more kind of blood and a few other bodily fluids throughout this movie. So in that sense, it's like a picture of a post-Stonewall world. Yeah. Should we talk about the plot very briefly? Well, yeah. So Al Pacino plays a cop called Steve Burns, but that's not really important because his name changes a bit later on. He is a late 20s, we're told to believe, cop who is recruited by his boss, his detective, whatever, his superior, to to investigate a subculture of the gay lifestyle, the leather scene, in which recently there have been quite grisly murders. The reason, now this is tenuous, the reason why they've asked him to do it is because he fits the physical type of the men who've been killed, which makes you think of all the men in all the bars in all of New York, this killer is going to track down this cop because he looks vaguely like somebody he might murder. And when we say physical type, what are we talking about? Dark hair, dark eyes, short. Like, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. Slim build, dark hair, dark eyes. They could have sent me, ladies and gentlemen. They could have. 
I know. Pacino doesn't actually come on until a little bit into the movie. Which I like, by the way. Yeah, so we get the sense that these murders uh, have been taking place. There's already been one guy, a Columbia professor, who's been killed before the movie starts. We witness a second murder take place where we actually see the killer depicted and we hear his voice in one of the early scenes of the film. We just can't see his face because he's covered with these, what do they call those? Aviator glasses and like a heavy leather outfit, but you can hear his kind of creepy camp voice. It's one of those things where the voice of the killer is ultimately not his voice. Like it's one of those, I find that to be one of the cheapest tricks of films. A red herring. I mean, it's not even a red herring. When he's in killer mode, he kind of talks in this way, and his face is obscured. Yeah, like he says he's been dubbed over. So we sort of recognize this figure, but we don't know who it is. But we watch him take a quite attractive man home from a bar. I did not remember... There is quite a lot of hardcore material in this movie, considering that it was a mainstream Hollywood film released in 1980. Yeah, so while there are no dicks... There are butts by the bucket load. And, like, close-ups. Yeah. In jockstraps. Like, you don't see any buttholes, per se. No. You do see wide-open legs in the shadows. Yeah, you see also a guy in a tub with a bunch of men circling around him, seeming to perhaps be be urinating. Yeah, Uh, you see see someone someone... uh, lube their wrist up with Crisco. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, now, but what I'm saying is like... like, They're very meaty butts as well, aren't they? (laughs) And hairy. They're good butts. This is very 70s, very 70s. But I was just struck because I didn't remember how many scenes pointless scenes, plot-wise, there are Pacino just wandering around these bars, staring and being stared at by men. And apparently, 40 minutes of this is missing. Yeah. Apparently, most of the cut 40 minutes is just more of this. Yeah. Is more of Pacino walking around and actually apparently seeing actual hardcore sex that the MPAA wanted cut out. Well, you know, I loved that about the film. I really loved that. What the crew, you... like, like, it is cruising in every sense of the word. Say more about it. So, he... Well, there's so much watching going on, yeah. so much observing. We couldn't help but dissect it, having lived some of the experiences. Like, if that guy was in the bar every single night, not going home with anybody, not touching anybody, kissing anybody, getting involved, I'd be like, what are you doing here? Either you want action or you don't want action. Just make up your mind or leave. He does get accosted a few times by people who either want to get with him and then he kind of gently rebuffs them or the owners of the bars or people who kind of question what he's doing there. Most most humorously, in the theme night where everybody's dressed as actual cops, as it's like some kind of S&M theme dressed as cops, and there's a hilarious guy down in the front of the frame who's actually filleting a giant nightstick. And Pacino, who who is a cop, an undercover cop, is the only one in the room not dressed as a cop. And and he gets kicked out because he doesn't have the right attitude. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Now, since this sub-series of our our, uh, podcast, this Dom sub-series, is (laughs) called... The male gaze. What did you think about the gazing in the film? It's Pacino looking at gay men, but it's also the men looking at him. Weren't you struck by how many mm-hmm. shots are just these mustachioed, leathered up guys staring yeah. at the camera 
you know, as the viewpoint of them ogling Pacino. That's real. In a film from 1980, in which a straight male actor character is being threatened, objectified, come on to, by not just one gay man, but, like, an entire room full of gay men. I mean, isn't that interesting? It's great. Like, I just... The, the reason why I kind of pine for this era not just because it's pre-AIDS and everything. It's just that I just don't think the gay lifestyle was as known. I feel like this was kind of an expose. Well, it's only an expose if it's showing what really went on. Imagine yourself as like Mildred Middle America showing up at your local cineplex to see Cruising. You don't know anything about this so-called leather scene. What is the depiction that you're seeing I mean, I told you I was going to bring out some queer theory for you, and I'm going to bring out one of my favorite bits of Foucault here. It's in an interview that Foucault gave. I read it in a book by Leo Bersani. He says that the thing that people actually fear about gay men is not what they do at night with their horrible activities of fisting each other and, you know, whatever sadomasochistic violent activities they get up to. It's the fact that the next morning they show up in a Parisian cafe smiling and eating brunch together. And that, I think, encapsulates something that's quite interesting about gay S&M culture, which is the play-acting quality of it. It's taking violent urges that are around us in the world and enacting them in what is, you know, for those who participate in this subculture, a kind of safe way of playing these roles consensually, enjoyably, dare I even say it, with jouissance, playfully. But in this movie, this incredibly literal-minded movie, made, it has to be said, entirely by straight men who are sort of tourists in the gay world, it's like, oh, a world in which men engage in, like, violent activities, it can't be enjoyable, playful, mm. safe. It has to then be on a spectrum and continuum that leads into actual killing, violence, threat, and unsafeness. So what you're saying is that, like, it's not self-contained within this world of the leather bar. Like, for the for the typical viewer, the seediness follows them everywhere. Well, where are the gay men in this movie who go to the leather bars and have fun and, like are happy, well-adjusted men. Well, isn't there that scene of that guy who's, like, in that swishy shop in Madison Avenue? Yeah, and then he gets killed. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's victim number two. Okay, well, we, we've sort of paused on the plot, but can we talk a little bit about what happens as Al Pacino gets drawn more and more into this world? So Al Pacino, as Steve Burns, you couldn't even remember his name. I would suggest that he's a very nondescript character. Like, do we know much about him? Can we say much about him? Well, I mean, I do know, having read a little bit, that the original character from the book Cruising, apparently he was much more of an unlikable character. He was a bit racist as well. Whereas in this, he's all in all quite a nice guy, you know? He's, he's yeah. like an innocent, he's like Bambi. Yeah. I mean, Pacino plays it very soft, I think, in yeah, a certain way. very soft, yeah. You can see why they pick him, why Paul Savino picks him to, like, set him into this den of vipers. It's like they're, they're putting him out as a rabbit to be attacked by the evil serial killer wolf. Well, what, they're, what they're saying, basically, is they pick him because he's the, he's the sub, he's the passive, you know? Yeah. He's sweet and gentle. 
like this is why I find it interesting about depictions of, of queerness on film. Whether you like it or not, he's neutered immediately, you know? Well, yes and no, because what happens to him as he gets more into this culture? So the first couple of times he goes to the clubs, he's mystified, he's a little bit scared, he is totally freaked out when he learns what the hanky code means. You in the water sports? No, I just, I like to watch. Later. Yeah. If you like to watch, take that hanky out of your pocket, asshole. But as he keeps going back, I would posit that the implication is that something is going on with him psychologically as he spends more time in this world. Yeah. The whole point of the film is that it's a playing on fear, is that being gay is contagious, that if you spend long enough time in this scene you'll learn to like it and you that every element that you find disgusting and you know threatening threatening and repulsive will somehow become perversely attractive to you and we see him like first he's doing this weightlifting yeah. he needs to like butch up his masculinity but he's also putting like now that eyebrow I pencil can you explain this a bit more I, well, mean, I don't know I, I don't mean, know anything about eyebrow pencil I, I love cosmetics I'm not gonna lie but I, I stay did, lauder over here so what I didn't know was that like is him kind of making his eyebrows a little bit sharper is that like a normal thing was that a normal look at the time I don't know I, I, I don't know either way I love it they set him up in a West Village apartment so it should be said that he has a girlfriend who doesn't know what he's doing he can't tell Nancy but he does keep periodically coming back to have these conjugal visits with her which the sex does get rougher as well. Yeah, the more time he spends in the hyper-masculine, violent world of the ramrod, the more he comes back to Nancy's apartment and is ramming her. Is he ramming her because he's been turned on by the, the violent aspect of the leather side? Or is he ramming her because he needs to show he's extra straight? Exactly. And one of the more interesting relationships in the whole film is the one that he has with his neighbor, Ted. If most of the gays depicted in the film are these butch leather queens, like, who is Ted? Ted is this sweet, artistic, friendly, boy-next-door type. Not only that, ladies and gentlemen, he's an aspiring playwright. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, like, what are some of the bon mots that Ted espouses? Come on, tell us, Brian. Ted's trying to write, like, a light romantic comedy, which he seems to think has fallen out of fashion. It sounds like something like Neil Simon would write or something. And he says, I bet they wouldn't reject me if I was Patty Chayefsky. At one point he says something like, oh, I don't want to eat any seafood. I'll blow up like Shelley Winters. Yeah. Ted is a sweetheart. Yeah. Pacino's character does not seem threatened by Ted and in fact kind of becomes quite protective and sort of attached to him as a person. Ted doesn't really provide him with a lot of crucial information. Like, what is Ted doing in the film as a character? Well, isn't Ted the acceptable face of what gay life, the gay lifestyle is? Sweet, innocuous, pansy. Yeah. And Pacino sort of grows to like him. Significantly, Ted has a roommate named Gregory, who is out of town for the summer performing in a musical. When he says roommate, I think we get the sense that it's like a roommate, fuck buddy, lover kind of situation. And that plays in later in the film. We'll get to that. We haven't talked about much about the kind of ongoing development of the murder plot. And this is where I really challenge you to call this a good movie, Sean, because as a murder mystery, this movie sucks. Yeah. It's not sucking in an enjoyable way. Yeah. I think in any good murder mystery, the killer has to have a motive for doing things. 
There is a weird psychological motive for this obscure character to do the killings. Yes. You know? It comes about three quarters of the way through the movie, we learn who the killer is. I just want to point out that we witness a couple of murders, and as we said, his face is obscured. What is his method? In the sex act, before and after, depending on the killing, he might tie you up and then stab you to death in the back. It's always in the back. And that that first time is the most excruciating because the guy's quite turned on, the guy that he takes home to his hotel. And they have had sex already because we're we're told that his rectum was dilated. Although I suppose he might have fucked the dead body. Ew. It's possible. Well, those are back in the days of extra strong poppers. (laughs) So, I mean, one's butthole just, you know, parts. (laughs) Like the Lincoln Tunnel. Yeah. But... When we first watch this, it's quite excruciating because it looks like it's going to be this rather intense S&M play where he hog ties the guy. At oh, one point, we think he's going to slice his nipple the off. The guy's Ooh, into we it. Both winced, yeah. We both winced, didn't we? We both winced. And then he takes the knife and he puts it up to his nipple <laughs> and then he stabs him repeatedly back and he says, you made me do this. Yeah. And then we see it again happen to another guy that he cruises in the Ramble in Central Park. Went at a porno theater. Yeah, at a porno theater. We've heard that he's done it also to this Columbia professor. Now, we've seen it. We don't know who this guy is. Pacino, at one point, thinks that someone who's been cruising him at the bar is the killer. They bring that guy in for an interrogation. You know, the worst thing is, okay... (laughs) So basically, the only person who takes an interest in Pacino, who follows him out of the bar, is immediately deemed the potential killer. To be fair, they identify that the murder weapon is a particular kind of serrated steak knife, and this guy is a waiter at the Iron Horse Steakhouse in Penn Station. So this is a Come link. On, they're all waiters in right. the bar. <laughs> this okay. is a link. Can I just say, the modern equivalent with everyone in the, the hoist is a barista. <laughs> A Polish barista. No, Italian. Italian. If it's Cafe Nero. Or a Polish barista maybe in Pret or something. But the Italian ones are all Cafe Nero. So, they conduct this incredibly clumsy sting operation where Pacino is trying to enact what he knows the murder to be. And the guy's like, tie you up, that's a bit too weird for me, man. And then literally 15 cops burst into the hotel room. Yeah, because they mishear what's happening. They bring him down to the station, and then they enact this insane, brutal interrogation. Insane. So supposedly this is a true incident from NYPD police They explain that it's true, but they don't say why it happened. (laughs) In the middle of the interrogation, they open a door. There's no knock on this door, which leads you to believe that the person behind it was waiting there the entire time. This giant black guy comes in. I mean giant comes in. 250 pounds, they say. We're told, in boots, a jockstrap, and a cowboy hat. He walks over and he bitch slaps this kid. And Pacino. And Pacino to the floor and walks out. No other explanation. I mean, I think it was some sense that they're just trying to psychologically screw around with this guy, playing with these kind of Freudian, Jungian, sadomasochistic images. You know, that sense of interrogation, if you just get somebody to be completely disoriented, they'll eventually confess. But of course... He doesn't confess because he isn't the killer. And the evidence comes that his fingerprints don't match the blood that was on this coin that they've found from the porno theater. So this has all been a red herring. Pacino is in over his head. Or as Paul Cerrito says, we're up to our ass in this. 
Can, up to the elbows. Can nice. I just say, okay, so here's where it falls apart as a murder mystery. Only after, what is it now? Three, four killings. Only at that point do they come up with the genius idea of looking at the Columbia University yearbook and looking at the students who studied with the professor who was the first murder victim and asking Pacino if he recognizes yeah. any of them. Which is clearly the first thing. I mean, even Jessica Fletcher would have done that right away. Do you know what I mean? I mean, even. Of course she would have. She's a genius criminologist. So as soon as they get the yearbook out, Pacino does recognize one of the students as one of the people who's been ogling him at the cockpit. They identify that he is a young undergraduate named Stewie Richardson. You're so, so good at remembering names. It's because I take notes. So tell us, Sean, a bit about Stewie Richardson when we finally see him not in his aviator glasses and his leather drag. Okay, so he's this tall, willowy, fey gay boy with daddy issues. Fay is a funny description. He's definitely slender and slim, but he's quite lean and taut. Okay. We see him doing a lot of um, we weightlifting. Do. He's, he's like the bad example of what one becomes when they put the leather on. He assumes the role of the murderer, even though he could just be an ordinary guy in the streets. Not just any he's ordinary fit, guy. He, yeah, yeah, he's, he's in good shape. I think he could have benefited from a different haircut. What is he studying at Columbia? The modern musical or something. <laughs> He's the American musical. A dissertation on the roots of the American musical. I mean, Brian, you could have been the killer. I, at this I was. Pacino stakes out his apartment, breaks in, and he discovers a few things. He discovers some Edvard Munch prints on the wall, the works of Carl Jung, and then he discovers, conveniently, in the closet... Uh, in the drink. Closet, he discovers an entire fortune's worth of leather gear and a box, a shoe box. What's inside that? About 250 unsent letters to the killer's father from the killer. <laughs> that say things like, every time I go and do a killing, I hear your voice inside my head. Basically, Wait, it's just things similar to that, yes. They're not on the screen very long, but you see a few of them, but it's like... As I was stabbing him, I was thinking of all the times that you didn't love me. I mean, that is not exactly what it says, but it's something along those lines. That was actually a text message I sent you earlier. <laughs> so stop bringing our personal lives into it, please. Were there any emoji involved? <laughs> Share. So, as a plot construction of a murder mystery, this is ridiculous. If you were coming up with the most obvious way to show the killer's motive, it's have... Not just one note explaining his motive, but 250 unsent letters. So now they have to trap Stewie. Yeah, but this is what annoys me, is because, like, Stewie is ultimately irrelevant. He's just, like, an archetype of the damaged psychopath. Yeah, and you know, how the, has like, he been damaged? Well, we don't know. I mean, like, I would have said that this film is quite skillfully directed. Like, But there's some things in this film that are just so, so blindingly dumb. We are given insight into the killer's mind by one singular fantasy sequence in which he goes into the park and tries to speak to his cold, distant, dead, imaginary father. And explains how sad he is and all yeah, that kind of stuff. his father didn't love him. Therefore, whenever he has these psychic breaks and he witnesses his father, he then immediately has to don his leather gear, go out and find a man, and kill him. But who looks nothing like his dad. You I know, know, it's unclear why but all why the men have to the... look this particular way. And why are they younger? I mean, if he's got daddy issues, why isn't he killing older guys? I mean, yeah. duh. <laughs> I don't know, we've got to go read our Jung. So Pacino now has this strategy in mind, which it has to be said is an absolutely foolhardy strategy. He stakes outside his apartment, 
starts intensively cruising him through the window. Then he lures him alone into Central Park. And then they have what is without a doubt the most amazing stretch of dialogue ever written by a straight writer-director. How big are you? Party size. What are you into? I go anywhere. I don't do anything. That's cool. Hips or lips? <laughs> Incredible. It, it turns out that Stewie only assumes the Dom role. He will not be passive in any way. He wants Pacino down on his knees to start giving him a blowjob. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's got him there in this secluded place. He knows this guy's a killer. We know he's a killer. Well, why didn't he alert the cops? Well, to, like, exactly, to the yeah. The yeah. Well, because they, they had that sting operation. It doesn't make any sense. He's about to start in going for the blowjob, and they both pull out knives. But because Pacino's aware of it, he sort of stabs Stewie. Stewie's injured but doesn't die. And then we see him in the hospital being confronted by Paul Sorvino, who's saying we're, we can get you for one of the murders because of the fingerprints, and we're going to try to pin all the other murders on you as well. I would posit this is a deeply unsatisfying ending to a also, murder mystery. Also, how many years of prison does he get? They say they're going to, for the one murder, they'll send him for 20 for life. But then they do this weird thing where they say, if you confess to the four or five other murders including the dissected bodies that are floating in the river, will put you in jail for eight years. I mean, I don't know. Is that how police operations work? That if you kill nine people, you can go to jail for just eight years? Because you just confess to them. Doesn't make any sense to me. Now, actually, I'm realizing we skipped an interesting plot thread. Do you remember the scene where Pacino goes into the neighbor's apartment? Sweet. Yeah, Pansy yeah. Ted. In the midst of all the denouement where Pacino is tracking down the real killer, I think Pacino is a little bit worried somehow that Ted is unsafe or might be killed. And as he's passing in the hall, who does he meet but Gregory, Ted's roommate slash lover, who like comes at Pacino, basically implying that Pacino is flirting with and trying to put the moves on Ted. And Gregory is really possessive. And Pacino snaps. He goes into this kind of violent rage where he beats up Gregory. What did you think that was all about? You could say that the pressure of the role which Al Pacino is playing is like getting to him so much that he acts out on his violent urges because he just doesn't know how to like have a conversation with these guys. I think there's a few ways to read it. It's like, one is, the implication that he somehow would be sexually involved with Ted makes him snap yeah. and attack. The other is that he actually recognizes that Gregory is actually a really manipulative and threatening person, and he's punching Gregory because he does have affection for Ted. But what's really disturbing is, end of the movie, after we've caught Stewie, the real killer, or supposed real killer, Ted is brutally murdered in his apartment. Yeah, he was brutally murdered. Yeah, so they come and they find him, and the question is, does that mean Stewie wasn't the killer and the killer is on the loose? Or is it what the police officers say, oh, this must have been a lover's quarrel, that Gregory was actually an incredibly violent and abusive boyfriend and killed his lover, Ted? Or... or what? That Al Pacino killed him. Yeah. So throughout the whole thing is this kind of simmering... I wouldn't even call it a red herring. Maybe it's a pink herring. 
that Pacino might be the killer himself. Okay, I don't believe that, first of all. But I do see why they set it up. Supposedly, that 40 minutes of missing footage gives greater credence to the possibility that Pacino may, in fact, be the killer himself. But this plotline involving Ted, I find really confusing because... Basically, every gay man in this movie is either a victim of a hate crime or an incredibly violent kind of sadomasochist slash serial killer. So it's either they're this pansy... It's like, it's like top or bottom, isn't it? They're a pansy who has to be protected by Pacino in the police force, or they're a kind of psychological crazy person with daddy issues. Thus, I would say further to our fictitious viewer Mildred in middle-class America leading to the idea that, as Leo Bersani titled his book, Is the Rectum a Grave? Yes, the <laughs> rectum is a grave. You go down that rectum, and it's a one-way... It's a streetcar named Desire, and the end is the graveyard, as, yeah. as Tennessee once wrote. Yeah. There is no way out of this homosexual lifestyle that does not involve death. Yeah, and if they just made the film three years later... Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, do but, you still stand by this being a good movie? I was very involved in it. And I liked the way it looked. And I could totally get behind I could suspend my disbelief. Let me tell you about the scene where I could not suspend my disbelief. There's one point uh, among the slippery slope of where the, the leathery hedonism begins to go to Pacino's head. Like a freshly capped bottle of poppers. He goes onto the dance floor and he takes a huff of, of a... Poppers soaked hanky. I quite like the fact that in this dark club, when he sniffs the poppers, the the colour slightly gets more intense. Do you uh -huh. notice this? And he speeds up in a really shitty way. Where like he literally starts like jittering like a can of paint in a paint mixer. And he <laughs> dances so badly. If I'm in that club, I would turn to the barman and say, get that straight cop out of here. Just by virtue of how he's dancing, how he's going apeshit on those poppers, that part for me is just like, cringe, Al Pacino can't dance. <sighs> Al Pacino, I have sympathy for him in this movie. I think he's doing his best, but he's given nothing to play, really. No. Then there's that weird, ambiguous ending. He returns home to the domestic, heteronormative bliss of the gorgeous, minimally decorated apartment owned by girlfriend Nancy. Oh, oh that apartment, the real estate. Even you'd That's... go straight for that oh apartment. Oh my god. I'd plough I'd plow fields <laughs> for that apartment. So he comes back and he's like, I'm going to tell you everything. Just let me go shave. So he goes he go to sort of symbolically cleanse himself from the identity he's assumed during his world and time in the gay underworld. All those gay men with stubble. Disgusting. <laughs> what does girlfriend Nancy then do? Well, Nancy finds on a chair the crumpled accoutrement of the night before, including his leather hat with the eagle on it, the aviator glasses, and that's that big, you know, crinkly, crunchy... You know that sound that leather makes? Mm. One of those jackets. Can so instead of here. saying, Hey, hon, what's this? She puts it on. <laughs> She puts it on slowly and erotically. The way I would have ended the film is he comes out of the bathroom and looks at her. I prefer my ending. He just keeps on shaving and she puts it on. The film ends. I no, would... then there's an inexplicable oh. shot of a tugboat. Yeah, which is which also opens the film and that's when they discover the body. It's like, what's the tugboat doing? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think... 
I just, can I just say, I don't like the fact that we're now led to believe that this straight-up A-grade lovely guy who had this assignment could potentially be a killer just because he spent a couple of weeks in a leather bar. I resent that. I mean, but it has to be said, whether or not it was in the world of gay people, sending a cop out just because he looks like the type of person who might be killed with absolutely no plan for what he's supposed to do would be psychologically damaging, right? Do you think you're cancelling the this? <laughs> Time off and loot. From Gene Triplehorn. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Broad Appeal number one final reference. Come back to Broad Appeal episode one. Um, I think the most shocking revelation to me, I didn't recall at all, that William Friedkin actually wrote this as well as directed it. It is identified in the credits as William Friedkin's Cruising. Yeah, everything about it is his. We then watch this sort of DVD extra documentary, but at no point in this documentary did it seem to be that they actually consulted with any gay people. Like, I think he spoke to the mafia guys who owned the bars in the West Village. He talked to the cops. I mean, the guys who went to the bars were extras in it. Yeah, but none of those people are vouching for the authenticity of gay life. I think the idea of the male gaze is very apropos here because I think why you're finding the movie so fascinating is it is about a crisis of masculinity, but I don't really even feel that these butch straight men and cops who made this film understand how insecure they seem in their own masculinity by the way that they've depicted this world. I know. So, I mean, my vision is completely clouded. I've excised all the negativity of it and just focused on the blissful hedonism and the odor of poppers. But really, what they are, they're like guys in a prison or a gym who are, like, walking around thinking that every other man there is staring at their butt and, like, gonna rape them. Like, it has that kind of fear of the homosexual, like, pervading it everywhere. Literal homophobia. Which is fascinating, but I think sort of for all the wrong reasons that William Friedkin and the other straight men who made this movie don't quite understand. Mm. Mm. It, it was a deeply fascinating film, and can I say a great choice to begin the new series? It is. We've gazed and gazed again. Cruise and cruise some more. <laughs> okay, so... The Male Gaze is a rather unconventional and new venture here at Broad Appeal. We are no longer restricted to a single decade. And so we are going to zip back in time for our next episode. We're going all the way back to 1956 to one of my favorite films, Douglas Sirk's melodrama classic, Written on the Wind, which, might I add, has women in it. So, at least we can do a little bit of our old, you know, broad appealing. Some of the women include Lauren Bacall. Yeah. And uh, Dorothy Malone. That's it. And the male lead is none other then, than Uber Homo Rock Hudson. Yeah. And the other male character in it is the host of Unsolved Mysteries, Robert, Robert Stack. Stack. Believe me, if you've never seen a Douglas Sirk melodrama, you're in for a treat, I'm sure. I should say that Written on the Wind is actually a very good film. And an Oscar-winning film. Yeah. So, Sean, where can people find us? So if you want to keep in touch, you can find us on Twitter, at Broad Appeal Pod. We each have individual Twitter handles. I'm at Sean McGovern X, and he's at B.A. Mullen Speaks. Our website is www.broadappealpod.com where you can find our previous 20 episodes, all of which focus on female-driven films from the 1990s. 
We'll be seeing you in two weeks' time for a bit more male gazing. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> no. Made a funny line.